This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, we're really excited uh, to reconnect with our next guest. We last saw him, I believe, Carol, on campus. Yes, we were totally um, on campus. Earlier this year? Earlier this year? Uh, Joel, help oh, us out. Again. Was it last Joel, fall? Joel, when did we see you? I think it was last fall, wasn't it? I think it was, it was this past fall. This yeah. past fall, that's right. All right, Doctor. The, the voice you're hearing is Dr. Joel Bloom, president of the New Jersey <laughs> Institute of Technology, NJIT, we know it as. He joins us on the phone from Newark, and that is where we last saw him last fall. So, Dr. Bloom, first of all, how are you? How are things for you, for your family, for your team? We're all well. I thank you for the question. The team is doing well. Uh, we're following all the prescriptions that we can get with regard to the CDC, the state of New Jersey, etc. The campus is open. We are coming to campus. Uh, we're up to about 25% of the staff now, which is uh, based on the guidance of our uh, governor and the, the various stages of phases that have been set up. So thank you. We're doing well. I hope you are all doing well. All yeah. Yeah. We are, all things considered. Just I losing mean, concepts of time, as, yeah. as we kind of made very clearly at <laughs> yeah. the top of the show. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so tell us about what you're working on, because, I mean, you are you are known, you personally, and I believe the school, it's fair to say, is known for, as the kids would say, your collabs, your collaborations uh, with local government. And specifically, you're working on some medical work, some mobile medical work, importantly, uh, to fight COVID-19 and and to sort of help out with the healthcare infrastructure or lack thereof. Tell us about that. Well, you're absolutely right. So what we saw in this uh, COVID-19 is a lack of facilities, a lack of critical infrastructure. So we are working in a three-way partnership with a group called the Tuckman Foundation, University Hospital in Newark, and NGIT. So we've put medical practitioners together with engineers and we've taken one of those uh, cargo containers. We've uh, re- refashioned them. We've bolted them together, if you will. And those become four healthcare units, a testing room, a, a beds in two of the units. Uh, and we built a prototype, put it on the campus of University Hospital in Newark, and actually ran some testing that we did for COVID-19. Uh, we obviously can do reception. Um, we can take record history. So now we've created very mobile. These are mobile containers. You've seen them stacked up at railways and at, uh, at airports. Very flexible, very mobile, whether it's COVID-19 or a natural disaster. We saw what happened to Puerto Rico and the long time in coming back. These, you can put them freighters, you can put them on trains, you can even put them on airplanes and move them around the world. So we built a prototype, the three-way partnership of the foundation, the hospital, and NJIT built 
and made operational prototype this past week. That is so cool. So tell me, um, Dr. Bloom, you know, so are they going to be put into use? Um, you did the prototype. I'm just curious about what kind of response you're hearing. What are the thoughts about applications and, and what's the demand to maybe get them up and running? Um, so we put it all out there on the web. Great, you know, the great mm-hmm. World Wide Web. We've had, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 views. Uh, our good senator, Senator Booker, Cory Booker, uh, came, viewed them. Um, we are interested. We'll soon hopefully be talking with FEMA. Um, we'll be talking with NIH about the application, and we're talking to hospitals, healthcare units, Great. healthcare systems about how you would deploy them. We certainly, uh, and we know about how we're going to produce them. We've already got one factory queued up. We can produce about a hundred, uh, about two hundred beds a week. So now that we've prototyped them, we found them to work. Uh, they're air-conditioned, unlike tents. You saw tents go up, right, mm-hmm. in the, during this crisis, during the pandemic. Well, tents are very hard to heat, they're very hard to chill, and they're very hard to keep dry. These are HVAC with the state-of-the-art filters. Um, they can be negative pressurized. Uh, they don't leak. They can be warm, they can be chilled, and they can be sanitized easily. Um, uh, So uh, there is the replacement to these emergency tents. The applications, they can be a bed for treating people. They can be diagnostic facilities. They can be registration facilities. They can be testing facilities. Again, very flexible. Plug and play uh, is how right. these units are designed. Talk to us about getting students back to campus in a meaningful way this fall. You are right there in the middle of Newark, so you have both the benefit and the drawback of a big urban campus. How's it going to work? So the benefit is we're right in the middle of two hospitals. Uh, one I've already talked about, University Hospital, or the one St. Michael's. They help us with all of the testing, Hmm. all of the contact tracing. So we have agreements. We're also working with the County of Essex to test everyone before they come back to campus. We're anticipating going from what the governor has named stage two to stage three, which means up to 50% of our students and our faculty and staff. So we're going to do converged learning. Um, We had a lot of practice. We've been doing converged learning, which is while a class is going on on campus, we can telecast it or you can go on the web and participate at home. Um, We've been doing that literally since 2013. So when we had to come back following spring break this past March 23rd, 100% of our courses went online. For the fall, we're going to do about half online and about a half in person as a poly Technic University, we are very lab intense. Now, again, you can do simulations for some labs, but for many labs, you cannot do it. And uh, this is part of a curriculum that very often leads to licensure or certificates for students. So um, that's the plan going forward. We're hoping to move, uh, New Jersey is hoping to move from stage two to stage three. Uh, you've probably been aware our numbers have been down. We're still one of the few green states in the United States um, with regard to the uh, spread of the virus. So 
we're anticipating residential students, we're anticipating in-class, in-person students, and we expect to do a significant amount of online. We will follow all of the... Everyone will get two masks that have been branded with NJIT logos on them. Uh, we'll do remote uh, temperature sensing around the campus and kiosks. Um, and again, we are equipped. Uh, we'll be doing some um, wastewater testing in our residential halls. And, you know, students work in classes and in groups and in pods. And we'll be doing some pool testing there. So we're trying everything we can to keep our community as safe as is possible. So, Joel, I have to ask you because it, you know, and just got about a minute or so left. I mean, we're watching, you know, other um, colleges, universities kind of figure their way back, and they really are having to, you know, figure out hybrid learning all of a sudden. You guys have been doing it, as you said, Converge Learning since 2013. Do you feel like we will, in the future, see a lot more of what you guys have been doing for the past few years because of what happened uh, of the virus? Does the academic, academia world, academic world, change or change longer term? Uh, yes, it does. It's, it's going to change because, again, people realize the power of having online learning Again, not for every course, not for every discipline, but it is very powerful and it is rather effective. Uh, again, not every discipline, not every course. So, yes, I think it's been changed forever. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've learned a lot from you over the years about, you know, how you guys are looking around the corner when it comes to education. So we really appreciate you spending some time with us, both on some of the novel things you're doing when it comes to partnerships and testing and tracing, uh, but also getting students back to campus. We know it is top of mind for us and for so many of our listeners out there. So Dr. Joel Bloom, our thanks to you, President, New Jersey Institute of Technology, joining us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you. So let's talk a little bit about a story that I feel like Business Week has done such a great job of capturing, Carol, which is yeah. this disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. But it's more complicated than just the typical, like, what do investors know that you know regular old <laughs> folks don't know? Right. Uh, and they're continuing to dig into it uh, with a plum as they do. As we do, Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us along with Mike Regan. He wrote the story. He is, of course, a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets. The story, Investors Can't Stop Dancing to the Bull Markets Tune. Joel, tee this up for us. So I think, um, I mean, Jason, as you said, like we one of the, the themes, I think, of the pandemic that we've noticed is just this utter disconnect between the sort of the real economy and the stock market. And, uh, you know, we've hit that note in the cover. Um, there's ways that we've hit it uh, with even just the, the recent earnings off Wall Street. But, but you know, this, this story that Mike did, I thought really, you know, one reason that it really jumped out to me were the, the valuations. Um, and, you know, as, as Mike says, like very close to the top of the story, the NASDAQ, which obviously just it was at record highs. Uh, you know, it's, it, the, the index's valuation, 34 times earnings. That's the uh, highest it's been for 15 years. When you see stuff like that, it just really jumps yeah. at you. So, so Mike, what what what's behind all this? What was the the point that you were able to kind of dig into in the story? Well, you know, uh, Joel, what's interesting to me is okay, you have this Wall Street investor class, 
uh, who is trained to look at the fundamentals. You look at the potential for earnings. You look at the potential for economic growth. All these things, and it, you know, you really have this sort of rigid, sort of mathematical approach to how you invest. But sometimes none of that matters, right? It's just the market gets in this mode, um, you know, where, whether you call it animal instincts or whatever it is, where um, you know it just starts ignoring all of the problems, all of the uncertainty. And one of the big issues right now is that if you're trying to to price. The, the stock market based on what you expect the earnings to be going forward. Well, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, there are numbers out there. There are estimates, but so many companies have withdrawn their guidance that it's, it's kind of anyone's guess from an index level, from sort of the macro aggregate le- level, what the earnings picture is, is going to look like in, in the next year. Um, so, you know, if you go back to the textbooks, you're sort of investing one-on-one. That should cause an uncertainty that would cause a, a risk aversion in the market. But we're really seeing the opposite. And, and to me, what's fascinating is you hear investors, uh, we had Scott Minard of uh, uh, Guggenheim uh, Investments quoted in the story from a, a recent Bloomberg TV interview. And he says, look, to me, it looks like a bubble. Now, that, that sounds scary, but to <laughs> Many investors who've lived through bubbles, you know, you don't want to get out on the ground floor of a bubble. You want to be there for the whole thing. So it's this sort of awkward, precarious situation where you're you're willing to ride it higher even though you don't know when it's all going to end. Mike, I feel like we have the ultimate insurance policy to prop up the stock market. And we've essentially gone from the Greenspan put to the Bernanke put to the Powell put. I mean, the Fed has shown time and time again that when we get into any kind of crisis, financial or otherwise, and this was initially not a financial crisis, it was a health crisis, the Fed will be there to make sure that the financial markets operate in a liquid and smooth ways. I mean, talk about the ultimate insurance policy. Yeah, I mean, and that's absolutely part of the bullish case uh, for why people are willing to sort of ignore the fundamentals for now is that um, I think the speed with which the Federal Reserve reacted, uh, you know, during the financial crisis, it was kind of, you know, you'd get hit by these nasty headlines about damage being done to, to the assets of banks day after day. And it took a while for the policy to catch up with that. Um, you know, remember the, the the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the TARP program, that failed in Congress on its first vote back during the financial crisis. This time, though, the Fed, both the Fed and the Congress, reacted very strongly and very swiftly. Uh, and that's obviously the, you know, the main reason to stay bullish throughout this. But I would say, uh, you know, when, you know, does it justify getting sort of unhinged completely from the fundamentals um, is when I start to wonder, and you wonder how long that can possibly last. You know, markets tend to mean revert back to something that sort of makes sense fundamentally. Um, right. So I, I think most people think that process will happen. It's just timing it is, is next to impossible. Um, Mike, the, another element that um, has just been such a phenomenon of the sort of the, the past couple of months has been the day trading set. And you've got some uh, interesting numbers here that uh, I, I really stuck out that, you know, up to, you know, 20 percent, 25 percent on certain days can be day traders. Uh, that's almost twice as much as even just a decade ago. Um, how much of are in, institutional investors actually like getting from day traders on all of this? Yeah, well, there, yeah, there's certainly this push among you know, the hedge hedge fund class and sort of the sophisticated investor class to try to 
wrap their heads around what these this new horde of day traders are doing. You know, the the Robinhood app, mm. and the Robin Tracker, the the app that tracks what's being bought and sold on on Robinhood uh, is is very popular among the quants now, mainly because that's kind of a window you get into the the retail trader that you don't necessarily get from some of the other uh, discount brokerages out there. But I do think uh, also, Joel, you know this. Reduction, complete elimination of brokerage fees that we saw, uh, you know, in the past year is a, is another huge element of it. You know, if there's no friction now, if you want to dabble in stocks, you're not paying nine dollars a trade or fifteen dollars a trade or, or whatever you know historically you used to pay. Now you can, you know, you can buy a stock for free. Um, to me, you know, the obvious counterpoint to that is you can also sell it for free. So I, I do think there is a risk of a of a sudden sentiment shift among that retail crowd. But you're right, the, the, the volume-wise, the fact that retail traders, according to Citadel, uh, can make up a quarter of the volume on the stock market on a, any day, I mean, that's that's rivaling the hedge fund world, yeah. the quants and the, and the momentum chasers of the world. So it's a force to be reckoned with that I think all of Wall Street's trying to wrap their head around what to do with this information coming from the new uh, hordes of retail traders. Yeah, and so last question for you briefly, Mike, is is that a lasting phenomenon in your estimation? I mean, no one really knows, but obviously part of that has been driven by people are at home. Uh, maybe they've got a little bit of extra money if, if they're lucky. <laughs> How does this change as we find the next normal here? Right, and you often see it compared to sort of an, uh, an entertainment product. You know, there's, hey, there's no yes. stuff on TV. You can't, you can't go to the movies. You can't go to the... And can't bet on vacation. sports and, yeah. Yeah, so um, we'll have to see. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if that sort of volume does ebb with the return of sports and the return of sort of life as it was, you know, getting back to normal live events, live concerts, and that sort of thing. I don't. I, I can't imagine it's all just people trading for entertainment, but I think yeah. it is certainly. You know, people find a lot of time on their hands uh, with not much to do. I think it's certainly feeding it to some degree. Yeah. All right, Mike Regan, always a treat to catch up with you. Our thanks to him. Check out his story in the upcoming issue of Business Week. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, time to do a little Business Week economics. We are so psyched, I think that's the technical term, to totally. have back with us. Uh, <laughs> totes, totes. Christopher Condon, Chris Condon. Federal Reserve and U.S. economy reporter. Fun fact, you know that Chris Condon and I were colleagues on the U.S. investing team at Bloomberg News? Oh, my God. That must have been wild. It was wild. He's a man of many talents. Ooh. I love his journalism. <laughs> oh, uh, the stories Chris could probably oh, tell. the stories. The oh. stories. He's joining us on the phone from Virginia. He's on the Fed beat now, which is arguably one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, these days. Uh, so, Chris, tell us what's going on yep. when we think about stimulus, what it's going to be, when it's going to be. This is the debate in Washington right now. It is. It is a very important debate, Jason. This is a, a really, I think, a momentous piece of legislation that's desperately needed. Its timing could not be better if they wrap it up um, in the next couple of weeks. You know that the uh, much of the stimulus that came from the CARES Act is winding down specifically the supplemental aid to people on unemployment benefits. Um, a lot of economists feel that, that uh, if that just disappears, it's going to create a huge strain in our economy um, by just eliminating a lot of demand. So that it will hurt households, it will hurt businesses. Um, and, and so far, it looks like they are making progress 
towards some kind of uh, package that would include both uh, direct payments to households, the size of which we don't really know yet, um, and some extension of the supplemental unemployment benefits. Those, those, so those are really two very important things. Well, but the size is really also quite important, and we're yet to hear overall numbers. That's right, because we got $3 trillion in terms of a relief package, Chris, back in March, right? We got a lot of aid. The package they're talking about now is a trillion. And I do wonder, tell us the size of this package, what it will mean for the economic recovery on the other side of the virus. Right. Well, the, the big thing is that so much income has been lost, Carol. Mm. Um, we, we still have... Uh, the numbers are difficult to tease out, but there's an estimated 25 million people still receiving unemployment benefits. That's a massive amount of, of lost income that is up to this point largely being replaced by government assistance. Some of that replacement has got to continue. Without that, consumer spending will drop again drastically, which then feeds on, and, and we, we begin to worry about what Glenn Hubbard, say, from Harvard, calls the demand doom loop. Um, less spending, which means more companies lay off people, which means more lost income, that's less spending, and so on and so on. It's a vicious cycle that we must absolutely avoid. Uh, and some of these things will go a long way towards that. Another item that kept coming up when I spoke to economists was aid to uh, state and local yes. government. Mm-hmm. Good. And so far, we're not really seeing, we're, we're not sure whether that will emerge in this package. Um, ben Bernanke most recently pointed out that after the last recession, that was one of the real big headwinds that, that slowed down the recovery. The fact that federal government did not really come through in helping state and local governments. So they laid off a lot of people. That was a big drag on demand, and, and the same will happen, and in a much worse fashion this time. Um, the, the layoffs from state and local governments are already something about twice as much as happened back after the so-called Great Recession. Um, so, so, so Chris, let's talk a little bit about states and, and municipal uh, aid there, because it feels like, I, I wonder from your perspective, is this a philosophical or is it a political debate around that sort of aid, or is it both? Uh, well, it, it is really both. Um, I, I think one of the important things that is, and, it, and this is a reasonable thing to raise for Republicans, that what you don't want to be doing is helping state and local governments cover up holes that were pre-existing. Right. You want to help them for holes that were created in their budget by the pandemic that they had no control over. But you don't want to be bailing them out, according to the, the a conservative economic philosophy. You don't want to be adding this moral hazard of bailing them out for uh, having run their budgets irresponsibly, say, in years previous. Um, and so that's a legitimate concern. Um, but to be too careful about that, I think, would leave a lot of um, municipalities and states just running into the ditch. The budget shortfalls are, uh, shortfalls are really massive, and, and, the, and the vast majority of that is legitimately caused by the drop in revenue associated with the shutdowns caused by the coronavirus. Yeah. 
I mean, it's amazing to think about. I mean, we were talking earlier in the show, Chris, about even you look at something like the New York City subway, you know, which is so intrinsic to the way that the economy runs and relies on revenue and and obviously employs a lot of people. Like, it's it's so complicated, Carol. Yeah, they're not taking in too much dough these days, obviously. No, nothing. I was just talking to somebody, too, about um, kind of utilities and just, you know, the money that goes into Port Authority that is then, you know, put back into, you know, mass transportation. I mean, it's just everything has shut down. Chris, I do wonder, though, the size of this next relief program, can it be the difference between a U.S. recession turning into a depression or a great recession? I mean, is that what we're talking about? And just got about 30, 40 seconds here. All of those, really. If... if um, if this entirely breaks down, and because of some just you know inability to find a compromise on the components or size of this prevents something, which is unlikely, I think. But if that happens, then the results could be rather catastrophic. Mm. Um, and that gets into that the, the idea, like I said, Hubbard talks about the demand doom loop. A compromise, though, that gets at least over the trillion-dollar bar, most economists feel that would be meaningful. Many of them say more is better, but mm. they also concede that you don't have to get up into Nancy Pelosi's $3.5 trillion. Right. Uh, right. Jason Furman, former chief economist at the White House for Barack Obama, said $2 trillion would be absolutely very, very helpful for this economy. So there is room for a compromise that is very meaningful. Right. All right, right. Great well, stuff. we will uh, track your work closely as we always do. Chris's story about this, it's going to be featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Check it out now on the Bloomberg or at Bloomberg.com. Chris Condon, Fed Reserve and U.S. Economy Reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Virginia. Love that guy. He's the I best. Do, I do too. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. So in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week, Small Business Survival Guide, we continue to look at how small businesses are doing. Joining us right now, one of our favorite people, no doubt about it, is Kate Crater. She's food editor at Bloomberg Pursuit. She's on the phone in New York City, and she's brought along a friend, Christina Tosi. She's founder at Milk Bar and creator of the Virtual Bake Club, which I would like to be a part of. And forgive me, Christina, did I say your name incorrectly? No, you said it just right. It's toesy like the toes on your feet. All right. Love it, love it. <laughs> and you two, you two are on the phone in New York City. Um, Kate, just cue us up here. I mean, we've been talking to you so much about small business, the restaurant space in particular. Um, how are they finding, how's everybody finding the way back? And, and, and just give us a little bit of background here. Um, well, I have to say intrepid restaurateurs and business owners are, I mean, I think they're doing things by any means necessary now. And we reported last week on how a lot of them were dealing with this crazy weather, not just intense rainstorms, but also intense heat. Um, And then there are people like Christina Tosi. So all my favorite people are on the phone right now on this call. (laughs) Christina Tosi who started Milk Bar. I hope everybody has had like a compost cookie and a birthday cake truffle in their life. Those are um, the brainchild of Christina. And she started Milk Bar, what, like a dozen years ago, Christina? Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, 11 and counting. (laughs) 11 and counting. And then in the midst of the pandemic, she was... um, She woke up and she was like, I want to be out there. Like, I want to figure out how to be out there for my people because her fans are really intrepid. And so she started this virtual bake club on Instagram Live. And every day for 100 days, she, like, 
heat up the ingredients that people so would cool. need the day before on Instagram and then started a bay club and it gets her videos get like 80,000 views. It's monumental. All right. So, Christina, tell us about this. Like, what was the inspiration? And, and also walk us through how it works, because it's a very deliberate process where you give people yeah. the ingredients so that they can be ready for the next day. Right. Yeah, that's right. So I, I was not, not dissimilar to how everyone was feeling, you know, at the beginning of COVID-19 hitting the U.S., you know, faced with, un- with, with so much uncertainty in, in all of the different corners of life. And I was sort of raised that when sort of like uncertainty and tragedy and scarcity hits, you figure out how to get into the world and be a part of something bigger than yourself. And my biggest issue with that was that you're not allowed to leave your house right Mm -hmm. and uh, I just had a moment where I said I've got I've got to do something and I've got to do something with um, my effort and my energy and I just went to the place that where I feel the most myself where I have realized the most impact in people's lives and that's the kitchen and I just went online one day um, and said Hey, I am like I'm. I'm feeling useless. I'm feeling like I miss the togetherness, and I. I just think I'm going to start a bake club. Like, is anyone else interested in joining? And if so, what time works? And <laughs> I just got the most recent resounding response. Right, like no real intention, no real plan. I didn't think about when am I posting it, this, that, or the other. I just threw it out there into the world, and it stuck. And so every day, I was very deliberate about. Every uh, every day prior to Bake Club, so sometime in the evening, I just post the ingredients that you need for the next day. And it's usually, you know, the most basic ingredients, flour, sugar, uh, butter, salt, what have you. And then if there are some sort of like substitutions, there's usually a star ingredient. Maybe it's pretzels, maybe it's oats, maybe it's whatever you have that's snacky lying in your cupboard. And I'm intentional. I don't even tell Bake Club what we're making until we're about five minutes in, until we've washed our hands with warm soapy water and belted <laughs> out happy birthday unapologetically to whoever's birthday it is. Love it. I play a playlist, and it's not until your oven is preheated and you've pulled out your ingredients that I even tell you what we're making because I think we're all looking for a little moment of surprise and wonder a moment that we can't talk ourselves into or out of where we just have to show up as we are. Just do it. And yeah. be ready for an adventure. And it that's is, what it's all about. It is brilliant. It is brilliant. I'm going down a rabbit hole right now as I look <laughs> at it. Um, I know, but it's so like it's so clever, this whole idea of kind of putting out the agreements but leaving some mystery, right, about kind of what we're going to do. What has surprised you, Christina, about this whole process? Uh, I, I think the way that it has stuck in people's lives, the, the intention with which people show up at 2 p.m., <laughs> I think in a, in a culture that is probably consumed with control, all the things that we have control of, we have been challenged these past months with our awareness of the lack of control that we actually have over anything. I mean, we have responsibility for our own actions but in the in the larger shape and space of it and that people are still looking for these joyful moments they're looking for a moment of lightness and brightness they're looking not for perfection in the kitchen but for something that makes them feel accomplished and that gives them a reason to connect with someone else 
to share their baked goods to do good with what they're doing. Right. And then to be honest, it's amazing to me that people will show up not knowing what they're making. <laughs> and I will single-handedly like trick them into learning how to make bagels. You know what I mean? Like, how steep that you would say, like, I got to go to culinary school, I'm not a chef, right. I can't do it, right? Like, those sorts of things are pretty powerful for me. Sounds Absolutely. like we all need to get in the kitchen together, Kate Crater, with a good bottle exactly. of wine. Exactly. Now we know what, like, we're bleeding audience at 2 p.m. <laughs> because they're all going to bake with Christina Tozzi. All right, great uh, so to catch up with you, Christina Tozzi, founder of Milk Bar, creator of the Virtual Bake Club. Check it out on Instagram Live. Our thanks to, to our fave, Katie Kay, Kate Crater, food editor for Bloomberg Pursuits, both. On the phone from New York City, when life hands you lemons, Carol, make lemon bars. Man, totally lemon bars. Well done, Jason Kelly. Score. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everyone. Time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. Bob Dahl is with us, Chief Equity Strategist, Senior Portfolio Manager at Nuveen Asset Management. He's joining us uh, on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Bob, delighted um, to have you here with us on this Tuesday. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Doing great. Good afternoon. Well, I'm looking at some of the research that you shared with us, and you have some views about kind of what the second half looks like. What visibility do you feel like you do truly have about the second half, especially here we are just kind of embarking on uh, second quarter earnings? Certainly less than usual. We are in unprecedented circumstances, and uh, it's always a guess what the next six months are going to look like, but um, these are extra guesses because of – All the uncertainties, I'm talking about um, the election, coronavirus, uh, second wave possibilities, the fact that the market has done so well and valuation levels are not particularly cheap, while at the same time we have that sea of liquidity from the Fed. So there are lots of variables driving this market. And Bob, you know, you said it right. We've got less uh, less than usual, in part because a lot of CEOs are kind of taking an opportunity to tell us less in many cases. Now, it's fair to say that they don't know maybe what their business is going to be for all the reasons that uh, you just identified. But do we need to, should we be hearing more from them in terms of their plans when it comes to spending and expectations? I think more than we did after the first quarter. Remember, the first quarter releases came out in late April, early May, and that was just early into the COVID situation. Mm -hmm. So if they raise their hand and say, yeah, we really just don't know where our business is going, we understood that. You know, it's now three months later, and they ought to have a little better feel. Uh, You know, I give them a pass, sort of like I did up front. It's more unknowable than usual, but maybe you can give me some trends. You yeah. know, was was June better than May? Was May better than April? Kind of what what what's the world looking like? You know, I have to say, I was delighted when I knew you were going to be on. Vince Signorella, who watches uh, the markets, we've been talking about you know some of your outlooks, um, and you know 
what I think is interesting is you're someone who's seen so many different market cycles and I'm not trying to date you or anything like that, but I just think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you bring a certain level of expertise to this. How do you kind of look at this market cycle? Is there something in history that we can even compare it with? Unfortunately not. Remember, we just, we just had the sharpest and shortest recession in uh, certainly modern times, if not U.S. history. You know, give me the parallel. There isn't one. This is an exogenous shock, this coronavirus that we're dealing with, and we don't know what the uh, flare-ups are going to look like. We don't know. Is there going to be a second wave? Then you put all the politics with it. Take it, for example, school reopenings. That's as much political as it is economic as, right. as it is about health, and so the uncertainties are, are high, and they're just uh, unprecedented. These are unusual times. So, Bob, you went exactly where I wanted to go next, which is our inability, and, and I think it's, it's right that we are unable to really sort of break all these things out. They're all interrelated in many ways, and it feels like politics has creeped into places that it, it candidly, historically, has not gone, and it's a presidential election year. Tell us how you're looking at the presidential election, because it's getting closer and closer. We're almost to August. We're almost to that point where we're going to have the conventions, whatever those are going to look like, and things are really going to be set for that last run to the election. How do you see investors looking at this choice at this point? So for starters, we do these 10 predictions every year. I've been doing it for 30 years. Never have I come out with a second set <laughs> because of coronavirus. In April, we came out with a second set. I bring that up because our election forecast changed. Hmm. Donald Trump on January 1st, in our view, was pretty much a shoe-in for re-election because presidents that run for a second term where there is no recession, have always, no exceptions, have always been reelected. Presidents that face a recession and run for another term are almost always defeated. So the calculus changes. I think the market um, usually pays attention to the election kind of post the conventions. Right. Perhaps it started already, but post the conventions. And if the money polls and the opinion polls are right, the odds of a Democratic sweep have moved up a bunch. And a Democratic sweep probably means higher taxes for corporations and wealthy individuals and high-income earners. And it probably means some re-regulation. And I think that set of comments I just made generally not favorable for the capital market. So there's a lurking negative out there, in my view. What about the Cold War between the U.S. and China? Could that potentially improve with a Biden White House? Well, that's very interesting. It is possible that a Biden administration would be uh, less um, strict about dealing with China around trade issues and the like. And so you have to make an assessment. Is the market going to focus on the short-term, quote, positive that comes from that potential change versus the long-term, oh, my goodness, who's going to ever deal with China and their, quote, stealing our technology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so short-term, it could be a bit of a lift, I would agree. Just got about a minute left here, Bob. So what do you do? What's your advice to investors as we look at the second half in terms of where to allocate assets? Yeah, I, I start by this is so so trite but so true. You've got to know what are you investing for. What's your time horizon? What's your risk tolerance? 
intolerance. Focus on that and all this market noise is all around that. If you have money, as a lot of people do, sitting on the sidelines, earmarked for the stock market, perhaps because you never put it in or you took it out on the decline, Dollar cost average. No one can pick tops and bottoms. So this is a great environment for dollar cost averaging. Put a little in every month for the next. You pick the number of months: six months, twelve months, uh, and, and and invest there. Pick companies that have good free cash flow characteristics that can service their debt, that can expand their business, that can do business in the new world in which we live. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Bob. Um, Really appreciate your insight. And, you know, fascinating, Jason. I think about what you did with um, Bloomberg Invest, right? Uh, Were you guys... Jim Coulter, yes. your head. Yes. The same idea, the right? The reboot. He, yeah. The reboot. And that's exactly what Bob just did. This whole idea that this was not a year that anybody could have called. No and you've got to rethink your assumptions. So um, great to catch up with Bob Dahl over at Nuveen Asset Management. He's the chief equity strategist. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.